So full disclosure, I'm a tiny investor in Clubhouse in the, the initial round. That's the Series A. They had us around before they were Clubhouse. But so the, the thing that's special about Clubhouse is they, they discovered a new medium of a different way of interacting with people. It is invite only and growing at a ridiculous pace. And the important thing for me is that the, the social network, once you are inside of Clubhouse, is, is very strong. So it's, I've never seen a time outside of you know, Facebook or Instagram when there was this kind of growth and the, the network remained intact. I mean, so the growth numbers are ridiculous. They're you know, growing 50% week over week. The engagement is really strong. Like that just doesn't really happen ever in a way that the social network remains intact. Following is a conversation with Austin Arid, the founder of Lambda School. Great companies fundamentally change how the world works. And Lambda is trying to do one of those extremely difficult zero to one tasks. We talked to Austin about his fascination with reading history in the context of business. The Wright brothers, John D. Rockefeller, and Jeff Bezos. Austin shared his thoughts on first principles thinking, how his moment mission in Eastern Ukraine at the age of 19 has shaped Lambda and how he's built his network in Silicon Valley coming from Utah. He also once put 100% of his net worth in Tesla and he shares why. He also shares why he believes Clubhouse is a $400 billion company. I also asked him why he thinks Peloton is a religion. The one startup idea he would explore if he didn't do Lambda school, raising a $30 million fr- fund without even intending to do it in the first place, the age of democratized angel investing, and the death of Silicon Valley. To be honest, this was my favorite conversation from Steal My Marketing Podcast. If you like this conversation, leave five stars in Apple Podcasts. And if you think I could have done a better job, you can email me your response at stealmymarketing.gmail.com. Here we go. It seems like you are a student of history, what is it that you find fascinating about reading about people like the Wright brothers or John D. Rockefeller? Yeah, I think for me, I, I, I view reading as a way to short circuit learning. So they're kind of two really good ways that you can learn. You can either experience or you can learn through others' experiences. So reading for me is a way to try to learn through others' experiences. You know, I read a lot of biographies. That's it's not so much that I find that there's the most information there as it is that I find those are more enjoyable and enjoyment is more of a limit to what you read than anything else. And yeah, I find there are a lot of you know similarities across all points in history and, and what people you know, I'm particularly interested in what it takes to create something new. And you know, you f- I find that that looks similar in, in pretty much whatever area you decide to look at. Right. Yeah. And can you relate to the problems that these entrepreneurs had faced in the early days with the problems that you face at Lambda? Certainly. I mean, they're, they're obviously different, right? Like at Lambda, we're not, you know, you, you mentioned the Wright brothers. We're not trying to build the first airplane and the problems that we're solving are more you know, economic and people and less, you know, physics when nobody really understands the physics and, and that kind of thing. But 
the process of discovery and of iteration and that that feels very similar in fact it you know i like to say it rhymes to some extent and i i think my process in if you, if you look at the times when lambda school has been successful in doing something new it will look very similar to the times when the Wright brothers were successful in doing something new or when, you know, really anybody was successful in doing something. Right. And your website is one of the most fascinating websites I've been to because it's just a blank page with four links and the reading section is a gold mine. Like all those memos and there are hundreds of pages of internal documents. And I was reading through the Disney one and I read a couple more and those are like, I've saved all of them just to read them when I have spare time. But what is your favorite memo or shareholder letter? And like, why is that? My favorite Amazon. I also like the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letters, but my favorite is by far Amazon. I think it's a couple of things. I think, first of all, you know, I am an internet entrepreneur the same way Jeff Bezos is. And the way that he thinks is just very clear. And I appreciate that. The other thing I like about Amazon is... Unlike, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway, you see them go through, you know, good times and bad times, but that's as an investment fund, which is different than, you know, as a company. And so seeing, you know, the different paths and processes that have worked for Amazon, I I find incredibly valuable. I think it's some of the best business writing ever. Right. And clarity in thinking, can that be taught or is that like an inborn thing? I think it can definitely be taught. In fact, I, you know, I'm not sure I'm an expert at it now, but there's certainly times when I look back on my career and, you know, the real, my biggest flaw at a certain time was actually, you know, I just wasn't thinking clearly and I wasn't approaching problems the right way. And I think you can, it's one of those things that when, when somebody thinks clearly and thinks from first principles, you can, you can kind of see it and you can see that they treat the world differently than somebody who reason. Jeff Bezos, or sorry, Elon Musk uses the phrase reasoning by analogy. So kind of using comparisons to think. And you can definitely see when someone is a, is a first principles thinker approaching things from, from the very fundamentals as opposed to, you know, based on what other people have said or what other people think. And there are definitely times when I'm not thinking in first principles and I'm just using an analogy. I think first principles thinking is really difficult to do. Yeah. And it's weird how our past is tied to our present in a lot of different ways. And I was going through one of your interviews and you said that there were certain aspects of you going to Ukraine at the age of 18 on a Mormon mission and the things that you learned there, like setting a goal and reflecting on those goals or trying to improve or failing fast. And those are some of the core principles of Lambda School. What are the other things that you learned during that age that you've applied to this particular company of yours? Yeah, during that phase was, I mean, that was an interesting phase of my life. So I, for those those that don't know, I served a a Mormon mission in Eastern Ukraine. So the way that works is when you turn 19, you basically send in paperwork to Salt Lake City and the leadership of the church assigns you, you know, you are going to go serve for two years in this place or that place. So I was assigned to serve in Eastern Ukraine and the, the Donetsk region, region or what they, what they used to call the Donbass. Now, some people call it the Donetsk People's Republic. Some people call it Donetsk. It, it really depends on which political line you're on as, as to what you call it. But the, you know, that was my, I'd been outside of the United States before, but I'd never lived outside of the United States and certainly not in a place 
you know, that was as unfamiliar to me as the former Soviet Union. And you live a, a very interesting lifestyle in that world where, you know, you, you live kind of the financials and the customs of somebody who's living locally and you speak the language, yet you're also an other because you're, you know, a missionary who's, you know, you're not dating, you're not hanging out, you're spending all of your time either serving or teaching English or teaching about Jesus, basically. So I, there are a bunch of different things that I learned during that time. One was just, you know, there are a lot of life skills, like how to, how to regiment your time, how to keep a plan, how to keep moving forward when you're not seeing any progress. But I think one of the most important things that I learned during that time was to feel comfortable acting differently than everybody else was and to not feel the need to do what everybody else was doing in, in any way. I'm not and you know, not being a contrarian by any stretch, but just like feeling comfortable in your own skin and being okay disagreeing with everybody around you is I think actually really important, especially if you're going to be a founder. Right. And between when you went there and then when you came back, did you feel like something had changed within you that you could carry on some of the principles that you had learned there for the rest of your life? Oh yeah. I was a, I was a completely different person when I left versus when I came back. I was different in the way I approached work. Like when I, growing up, I was, I was somebody who was always pretty talented and pretty smart. And I was, I try, would try to be as lazy as I could and put in the minimum amount of effort that was possible. When I came back and that, and that was really my stumbling block earlier in life was, you know, how little can I work? When I came back, that was not ever a thought process that crossed my mind. Like, you know, working less is not, something that's appealing to me in any way. <laughs> and then it, you know, that it was just so totally different. I learned how to slow my mind down and think more carefully and more deliberately. And I think I, you know, I was one of the first generations to grow up online and, you know, I got Facebook in high school. And one of the, one of the things that is unique about the mission is you don't use the internet when I mean, you actually don't read any books that aren't either. Well, for me, it was Russian learning material or scripture. So there's a lot less dopamine I'm used to now. And I, when I got back, you know, I got, first thing I did when I got home was I, you know, got my iPhone and I got on Facebook and I like zoned out for like 12 straight hours, just like feeling the sheer rush of social media. And I was like, oh my gosh, that, you know, that's what I've been doing my whole life. I just didn't realize it until now because I'd never experienced anything different. So that was, a, that was a wake up call to me of sorts. Wow. How much time had you spent there in the Ukraine? Two years. Oh, nice. Good part of like your life. Yeah, it was a while. <laughs> right. And one of the coolest things I find about Lambda School is it not only teaches students to code and it also teaches students the important skill of networking. And they use LinkedIn advanced search to look for mentors. And you said in one of your tweets that a good portion of the jobs come out of those networks that they pay during the course. What are the core good principles of networking? Like if a person wants to build a network, what are the step-by-step -step process that one can follow to build it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so the first thing, you know, the, the first lesson I suppose about networking is that you perhaps counterintuitively have to learn to give value before you extract value. So you have to build a network by, you know, helping people and being supportive. 
before you're able to get the value out. And that's surprising to some people, but you have to, you know, you have to be doing something within a community, contributing some sort of value before you're able to ask for favors. And then outside of that, it's, it's really pretty straightforward. I think of networking as like getting in touch with somebody that you would like to get to know better. And people are way more open to, you know, you cold emailing them or you cold reaching out than most people would assume. And then it's, for lack of a better way to describe it, it's impressing them and them going away with the notion that, wow, that's somebody I would trust with something. And if you can do that, then usually people will open up their networks and it, it kind of grows exponentially. Right. How did you build your own network in Silicon Valley? Oh, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, so I started out not in Silicon Valley. I was yeah. in, in Utah. And the, like the first connection that I made that became super impactful was actually a guy named Jeremy Hanks. And he ran a little, uh, not a little, he ran a, a kind of a drop shipping company uh, near okay. us now. It's, it's called Disco like back when drop shipping was, was kind of new, but he just was, he spoke at some conference and I went up and talked to him after, a, after the conference. And basically I just said, Hey, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to sell stuff on eBay and he, his company helped you sell stuff on eBay, which dates this conversation a little bit. And he said, Hey, come in, I'll give you, you know, a free account for what we're doing. And, you know, we'll see if I can be helpful. After my mission, I ended up working at his company for a little bit. And then I, I left to move to China because I wanted to figure out importing, exporting. And then we stayed in touch a little bit. And then when he came to China, we met up again. And anyway, a lot of what the network I have now came from that initial you know, step to just reach out to a random person at a conference. And now a lot of my network is from Twitter or Y Combinator. And those are the two places I tend to, to meet the most folks today. Right. With dropshipping, was Facebook ads a thing back then? Not really. I mean, this was like, this was before Amazon or Shopify were really a thing. Okay. So the dropshipping was basically find how to sell stuff on eBay or Craigslist. There wasn't, it was not as advanced as it is today. Okay. Yeah. And I was listening to one of the interviews of Jason Calacanis and he was talking about why he invested in some of the companies that are huge now, but a lot of people were not bearish about them two or three years back. And he said, one of the things he always thinks about is what will the world be like if a company succeeds? So for Tesla, it's like the world will be electric and solar power will be a thing. So for Lambda School, like what will be the world look like 10 years from now if Lambda School is able to achieve all the things that it is trying to achieve? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, I think Jason is right in his analysis. It's actually something that's surprisingly difficult for the average. You know, it's, it's really easy to imagine things going to zero. It's really, really difficult to imagine what would happen if something, you know, works out. So for, for Lambda School, if we're successful, basically anybody in the world will be able to raise their hand, say, I want a better job. And we'll be able to help them get there all the way. We'll provide all the training. We'll provide the connections. We'll provide the job sourcing. We'll hopefully be able to pay people along the way. So it's, you know, the same way Uber lets you click a button and get a ride. We'll be able, you'll be able to click a button, do a bunch of work, and then get a better job. So that's the, that's the end goal of Lambda School. 
Right. Yeah. The moment I told my friends about Lambda School, like five or six of my friends from India, they tried to apply. But I guess at this point, <laughs> uh, outside of the US, you can't like study for free. So I guess that's... Not yet. Yeah, yeah. We, we've, we've run some pilots in India and they work really well. Everybody got hired very quickly, but we need to figure out the, the financial model a little bit better before we expand internationally. It's not, you know, because it's free up front, it's not, yeah. not quite as simple as, you know, just charging it to a new set of people. Right. Yeah. And India is a huge market, I guess, because there are lots of software engineers there. So they'll be huge. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we'll about- get there. Right, we need you. And about about three or four years back, you put 100% of your net worth into Tesla. This was, I guess, before Lambda School. And, Correct. and at that time, if a common average guy read the news, like he could read positive things about Tesla, but there were equally negative things about Tesla, especially in the mainstream media. How were you able to remove that clutter and think clearly that this is a company that is going to be big in the next decade? And put all your net worth with so much conviction? Yeah. I mean, so it was a couple of things. I, you know, looked into, I started to really understand, I'd spent a lot of time understanding how factories work and, you know, what kind of scale works in factories, what kind of scale doesn't, what, what you have to do to be successful. I loved the, the car. I really, really wanted at the time they only had a model S and I thought, you know, if I could ever afford a Model S, I would, would be happy. Now I drive a Model 3 because it's actually relatively cheap. And, you know, I saw that path to a Model 3 and I, and I believe that they would be able to figure it out. And it, like you mentioned earlier, when you're talking to, to Jason, it's one of those things where if it works out, it's going to be one of the biggest things ever. And I think the likelihood of them figuring it out is relatively high. So I didn't, I, and I, you know, even with that train of thought, I still underestimated how big it would be and will be if it's successful. Like I wouldn't have guessed that. So if I would have bought, well, if I wouldn't have sold, then I would be up like 22x by now. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed it had that much upside, but it still seemed like a really good bet to me. Right. And the similar argument is going around on Twitter about Clubhouse as well. Like there are all these people who are bullish on Clubhouse. And then there are all these people who are like Twitter spaces is coming out and Instagram is going to introduce it. So what is your bull case for Clubhouse? Yeah. So full disclosure, I'm a tiny investor in Clubhouse in the the initial round. That's the Series A. They had us around before they were Clubhouse. But so the the thing that's special about Clubhouse is they they discovered a new medium of a different way of interacting with people. It is invite only and growing at a ridiculous pace. And the important thing for me is that the the social network once you are inside of Clubhouse is is very strong. So it's I've never seen a time outside of you know Facebook or Instagram when there was this kind of growth and the the network remained intact i mean so the growth numbers are ridiculous they're you know growing 50% week over week the engagement is really strong like that just doesn't really happen ever in a way that the social network remains intact so the bear case is that you know that if you want to make an argument that it's going to fail the arguments are that after coronavirus goes away, you won't need it as much anymore. 
there's a you can make an argument that you know growth will slow for some reason or it will become saturated honestly outside of those two things i don't see a way where it doesn't become a multi-billion dollar company or you know 10 billion possibly i think the 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 bull case in this instance is you know 100 million 100 billion 400 billion like among the biggest companies ever type of company i think my my instinct says that's what will happen um is that there will and sorry the other thing that makes me really excited about them is just the team mm-hmm. so i've been able to watch them from the very early days grow at a very rapid pace iterate insanely quickly have very small number of people focus on all the right things and like paul and rohan i think are just special founders so that's that's a bull case for clubhouse wow and one of your favorite quotes of mine is you tweeted one day that great products have a ton of subtleties that compound over time to build a competitive competitive advantage can you give one example of a great product that symbolizes this? yeah let me think there there's so many so one that i'm watching now is rome research so so the it's really easy to build like exactly what somebody has today it's almost impossible to build what somebody will build tomorrow so i think the one of the mistakes that i saw a tweet the other day that said incumbents overestimate the importance of distribution and founders underestimate it so you can have you know if you are twitter it is an enormous advantage that you have all of those you know hundreds of millions of users already on the platform the disadvantage is going to zero going from zero to one is just so much more difficult than it appears and there's so many very little subtle things that clubhouse has done that are are just magical i mean when you when you join and they automatically put you in a room with a few of your friends so you can experience the product instantly the way they've built very simple moderation the way you can join and leave a room like i mean the people at twitter know exactly what clubhouse is and they've been using it since the early days but from what i've seen and i'm you know an early beta user of spaces it just doesn't have those same things that make the product magical on clubhouse even even though they can just use it and try to clone it one for one the difference is they're trying to clone it from within twitter so the first principles are different and you can't just do a one on one you know you're you're piggybacking off of the twitter social graph instead of off of contacts So that means inviting someone to be a user is slightly different and that means how you form rooms is slightly different and it, so it's just it's really 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 hard to go zero to one right yeah and uh, I guess the one question i had was related to education like what is the most misunderstood thing about lambda school and was education ever fairly priced and if it was then what has happened today oh that's a really good question so i think the first question that you have to answer about lambda is what is it that we do because if you look at a university a university does a whole variety of things right they have you know there's a network that you gain there are parties that you can go to there's a self discovery phase when you're trying to figure out who you are and what you want to do with the rest of your life so it's this big bundle of things and lambda is a separate but different bundle So Lambda, you know, we're very focused on the career aspect. So we we help you get a job and we help you improve your career. We also help you kind of 
become capable of learning on your own and become capable, more capable of having a growth mindset and doing things that you didn't think you could do before, even without a school. So it's, it's, a, it's a big bundle. And the, the real question of price is, you know, the, the right price is whatever people will pay and feel happy about it. So for some people, uh, university education is priced correctly today. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's probably not true for a lot of people. And in my, from my vantage, the price of Lambda is, you know, some portion of the increase in future income that you wouldn't have had without Lambda. So I could really easily make an economic argument that we are drastically underpricing, even in the instance where, you know, we charge $30,000 if we were the only viable way for you to move from making, you know, 30K a year to 150K a year, you know, what's that extra 120K a year over the course of your lifetime? It's, it's enormous. So I think it's really difficult to price right. I think we're probably priced low, even though it feels high to a lot of people. And I think a lot of universities are also, you know, they are priced low for some people and priced high for other people. And so it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike. Right. Yeah. And the one thing that you're good at is growing things fast. You did that with the book. You did that with Lambda School. So hypothetically speaking, and I guess this is a question for me as much as it is for the audience. If Lambda School had a podcast, how would you grow it really, really fast? Honestly, right now, I would probably tap into Clubhouse. I would, I mean, the number one thing that grows podcasts is getting popular guests. I'd get a lot of popular guests. And then, you know, if your only focus is growing the podcast, I would make, you know, if you cause some sort of controversy or do something noteworthy, it will grow faster. Now you're you're probably not only focused on growing the podcast. You also want it to be sustainable and good and have word of mouth. Right. So at a certain point, it just becomes, you know, make a really good podcast. But I'd imagine the number one driver of podcast listeners is who the guests are. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And if you are not doing Lambda School, is there a startup idea that you would explore? So the thing that, the thing that I've been intrigued by I'm curious if there's a way to make it easier for companies to make decisions and eliminate roadblocks quickly. So some sort of framework within a company that would help people decide what to do next, assign responsibility and follow up a little bit better than Asana would be interesting to me. And I'm also always interested in kind of note-taking slash, you know, I'd I'd probably work for Rome Research, honestly. I love... (laughs) I love what they're doing. And I think it's the, the leverage that you can gain by that is super powerful. So it'd be one of those two things, but I know those are so far away from what I'm at. Like I'm definitely where I should be with Lambda. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And you shared this very interesting tweet thread on Peloton and religion. So I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you take a lot of steps back, I think America is losing its religion in a lot of ways. The number of people who believe in, you know, traditional religion is dropping really rapidly and it's not being replaced with anything. So people are finding things to replace it with. A lot of times I think that's politics, but we're missing groups. We're missing community. We're missing people who care about each other. And I think that's something that's fundamental to, to humans. And I think, Well, I guess I know because they've said it explicitly, places like 
SoulCycle and Barry's Bootcamp and Peloton are exploiting that and they know that we're missing that. And so they're trying to replace some sense of that with a different product. And I think that's super smart. I think a lot of great products that are community driven will start to feel like cults or religions. And I think that's actually a good thing. That may be something that most people wouldn't agree with me on is I think that's a net good for people, not a net bad. Mm. And you have been very vocal about the importance of great chief operating officers. So like, who is your favorite CEO and why? Well, my favorite COO is Molly Graham, who is Lambda School's COO. Wow. I think, I think the important thing with a CEO-COO relationship is it's not unlike a marriage where it's really good for the two to have, for their strengths and weaknesses to be offset. So the strength of the CEO be the weakness of the COO and vice versa. And I think Molly and I have that kind of relationship. I don't want to put words in, in her mouth, but what I enjoy doing is what she hates doing and vice versa. And I think one of the most important things for any CEO to do is realize where their weaknesses are, where they need help. And you, know, you, can, you can certainly try to improve on those weaknesses, but I found it's better for me to focus on my strengths and then have somebody else you know, perform their strengths in addition to mine. And I think that is, you know, especially for most founders in Silicon Valley and probably most founders everywhere, in order to get something off the ground, it requires an abundance of some type of strength. And those strengths usually come with, you know, offsetting weaknesses. So my, you know, my offsetting weaknesses are different than Mark Zuckerberg's, which are different than Mark, Jeff Bezos or, or whoever else. Right. But surrounding yourself with people who can fill in those gaps, I think is incredibly important. And if you look at the history of Silicon Valley, the companies that do the best in the long run are those that do the best at that, at filling those gaps with really great people. Right. Yeah. And your number one tip of marketing to startups is find something that other people find really valuable and find a way to give that to people for free. And you did that with Lambda School in the early days. You had free classes and then you sort of build a list of people, reach out to them, and then build the first like cohort of Lambda School. Apart from Lambda, what is your favorite example of a startup doing it? I think Robinhood did a, an incredible job of that. You know, like give, giving away free trades as like the, the shtick. I don't know, there, there are any number of companies. And what's another example? I mean, even companies like Peloton, which we talked about earlier, they have very generous free trials. I've seen, you know, perhaps my favorite example ever was a clothing company that just shipped you a free t-shirt and was like, Hey, if you, you know, that I don't know what the cost of shipping a t-shirt is, but it's you know probably a few bucks. And so shipping that to everybody, you know, your cost might be five bucks, which is like the cost of an ad, you know, yeah. but there is something when you believe strongly enough in your product that you will let people try it before they buy it. It, it's a hundred times easier to grow quickly. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned your investments and you recently tweeted that you had made five investments. Each of them was less than $5,000. You made one investment that was $1,000. And those are amounts that most people in America, they can afford it. So are we at a point when we can have a Robin Hood of angel investing? I think that's what AngelList is building to some degree. I think the the missing piece right now is companies being willing to take small checks 
But I think that is is coming into its own. I mean, my my investment in Clubhouse was one of those that's less than five thousand dollars, and I think Clubhouse was very forward thinking in letting people invest, you know, small amounts and feel like they are taking part in the mission. And you know, it's not it wasn't a big check, but if if Clubhouse does as well as I think it's going to do, it could be you know really impactful for me. It could be, I mean, let's take a bull case scenario where Clubhouse becomes a hundred billion dollar company. If I invested, you know, a couple thousand dollars at a hundred million dollar valuation, that's a thousand X. So your couple thousand dollar check could be worth a couple million. Like that's, that's super meaningful for most people. Now it's very rare that investment will do a thousand X, but in the case that it does, like that's that's enough for the average American to retire on, right? Mm. So that's, I know that's, that's really interesting. I think, you know, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money on angel investing. So you should assume that that will be the case. But I also think, you know, we should, you should have the ability to decide for yourself what, what you'd like to do. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Right. And on the founder side, what is the benefit for the founder raising small checks from a lot of people than raising say 5 million from one investor? Yeah. So I think that that's, that's a really good question. So for me, you know, being, we'll take Clubhouse as an example. Like I really, really want Clubhouse to do well, even though my check size is minuscule, you know, so maybe at the time I invested, it was a couple thousand dollars and now it's $20,000 or something like that. I'm now invested in the success to some degree of Clubhouse yes. and if Clubhouse can do that in such a way that, you know, let's say you could get a thousand investors that are, invest a thousand dollars a piece. Um, I don't know what the regulations are around all of that, but right. that's a thousand people that want to see you succeed and will take small actions to make that true. Is that more or less meaningful than, you know, Sequoia really wanting you to succeed? You could, you can make an argument either way, but there's a really good argument. I think that I'd rather have a thousand people. Right. Yeah. You moved in from Utah to Silicon Valley, and I guess now you're back to Utah. And uh, like I've been reading on Twitter, there's this exodus of people moving out of California to all these different places, especially Miami. Do you think we are at a point where we are watching the Silicon Valley as we knew it die? I think it has died to some degree. I mean, you can question how much it will come back, but I don't think it will ever be the Silicon Valley of 2018, 2019 again. I don't know exactly what it will look like in the future. I would assume there's still a bunch of people in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco. I'd assume there's some other startup hubs, which there already were before 2020. They're starting to you know, pop out and get a little bit bigger. The, the most important question, I think, is does Silicon Valley remain the place you go if you're going to start a company? And secondarily, if you're starting a company that's going to grow up and get really big, do you put it in Silicon Valley or do you put it somewhere else or do you not care and it goes in the cloud? I'm not sure on that yet, but that's, those are the really important questions because they explain to what extent there is or isn't a network effect that will continue. I mean, I've, I've said publicly that I think if, if San Francisco manages to screw this up to the point that they cease to be Silicon Valley, that'll be one of the biggest misuses of potential that there's ever been for a city. That's just sad, honestly. 
and I say that as somebody who, you know, I, I love the Bay area and I hate it because it, it's a beautiful place. It's amazing. I love being with all the founders and it was super difficult for my family to be there. And I wish you could just have the best of both worlds. I think you could, but I don't think there's the political willpower to do what it takes. With coronavirus and in 2020, was it just COVID and uh, like two or three factors? Or was there an ongoing trend that just accelerated because of COVID? I think it was an ongoing trend that accelerated, but COVID made it like super, super stark. I mean, for a lot of people that I've talked to, you know, the reason we left originally is, you know, there was a shelter in place order in California that meant we couldn't take our kids to the park, right? And we were in a small apartment in San Francisco with three kids and me working and my wife. And like, it just didn't make sense anymore. Like it, it practically didn't work to be there. So we originally left for like, you know, thought was for a weekend And then after a while, there was no reason to come back. So it just accelerated that dramatically. I don't think if, if COVID hadn't happened, I think I would have still been in the Bay Area. And right now, I don't know what the long term will be, but it's certainly not. For me, I doubt it's, you know, just go back to the Bay Area and pretend like it never happened. So we'll see. Yeah. And what is the story behind you raising a $30 million fund, which you did not intend <laughs> to raise in the first place? Yeah, so that was... Yeah, I was tweeting about the small amounts of capital that I'd been investing in companies. And a couple of people interpreted that to me. And I was, I was making fun of people who were investing small amounts, but it, it wasn't. It was just saying, look, I know this isn't incredibly meaningful from, from the company's perspective. That's like a fourth of an engineer for like, you know, less than a month. But the, and so Sahil from Gumroad. I still need to ask him how to say his name because we talk all the time. But I don't know how to say his name correctly. <laughs> it's, um, it's an Indian Sahil, name. Yeah. Thank you. So he was like, he'd been trying to convince me to raise a rolling fund, but I was like, look, I don't have time to, to raise a fund. So he just started gathering interest. And then all of a sudden there was a fund. So I'm going to you know do a, a little bit more than I was. I'm you know not going to raise anywhere near 40 million. I'm going to do you know, a couple million a year which is basically what I do now, but I can add a zero to my $10,000 checks or to my, you know, $2,000 checks. But yeah, that was, that was one of the craziest things that ever happened to me is to have raised a big venture fund without intentionally raising a venture fund. Right. It's crazy how with a few tweets, one can raise $30 million or a Reddit forum can break hedge funds. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, man. This has been an interesting interview. It was good chatting. Thanks so much. <laughs> Sure, man. <laughs>